filmmaker Mira Nair, who splits her time between New York, Kampala, and New Delhi, creates complex worlds of color and sounds where modernity often meets with tradition. The same complexity is reflected in the diverse talents she surrounds herself with in her New York-based post-production family. I feel like she brings a documentary feel to everything that she does. She wants things to sound like if the microphone was just on the street, exactly as though you were getting all the things that were happening there. She doesn't want her films to sound antiseptic. She wants it just filled with life. I'm your host, Isabel Sederni, and in this episode of Frame by Frame, picture editors Barry Brown and Allison Johnson, re-recording mixer Dominic Tavella, supervising sound editor Dave Patterson, dialogue and ADR editor Tony Martinez, music editor Jen Dunnington, and assistant editor Dave Smith talk about their approach in working in collaboration with Mira Nair on both documentaries and scripted features over the past 40 years. Frame by Frame is presented by Post New York Alliance because it's how you finish that counts. You can share this conversation through our website, bit.do slash framebyframe, or via Twitter at at PostNY. You can also find us on iTunes. Search Frame by Frame and click the orange icon. Picture editor Barry Brown has worked with Mira Nair on her documentary films India Cabaret, Salam Bombay, and The Laughing Club of India, as well as her most recent scripted feature, Queen of Katwe. More frequently, he collaborates as a picture editor with filmmaker Spike Lee whom he's worked with on over 20 films, including Do the Right Thing, Malcolm X, When the Levees Broke, A Requiem in Four Acts, and the recent Grand Prix Award winner at Cannes, The Black Klansman. Barry started things off by talking about how he met Mira Nair as a first-time editor for her documentary, India Cabaret. Mira was looking for an editor just to do a 10-minute thing on this film, India Cabaret, about dancers in Bombay at this club but was really more about their lives and about their friendships and about the club rather than about any kind of sex clients that they had. So I got this call from her. She said, you know, I'm looking for an editor, and this friend of mine showed me this film High Wire, which you edited, which I'd also co-produced and edited this film with a friend of mine, Sandy Sissel, who directed it and who's a cinematographer. And I never thought of myself as an editor. But I was editing my own stuff. And so I edited that. <laughs> and she said, you know, will you do this 10-minute piece on this documentary I'm doing? I, I need to raise some money. And so I said, sure. I mean, nobody's ever hired me to edit. Yeah, I'll do it, right? And during the course of this week, she was getting progressively more and more upset. I could see her physically <laughs> getting more and more upset. I thought, wow, oh, okay, you know, I'm, I mean, hey, I'm not an editor, so, you know. Then by the end of the week, she said, okay, two things. One, will you edit the documentary when I get the money? And secondly, I've got to fire a friend of mine who I went to college with, who she'd gone to Harvard with. She said, I've just seen a real editor work. And I can't hire my friend and, and evidently destroy their friendship. So it's actually, Mira was the very first person to ever hire me as an editor. And I thought, you know, you're really crazy. <laughs> I, as a matter of fact, I felt that for the next five films. <laughs> uh, you know, then, then Spike then asked me to cut for him on school days and do the right thing. And I felt all the way up through to Malcolm X, somebody from the studio somewhere, somebody was going to come in and say, 
what what what's he doing here? <laughs> I mean, you know, you you guys have a real budget. You can hire a real editor. Okay, pal, come on, come on, come on. Step away from the steam back. Come on, come on. Let's let's do this the easy way, you know. And so, I guess School Days was really my first feature as an editor. And I and I don't think Spike would have hired me to do School Days if I hadn't done the previous film with Mira. In an India cabaret, I don't think so. But Spike and I were friends, and Mira and I were friends, and that's how these things happen. And so basically, we did that film successfully, and then it was a natural thing for her to want me to do Salam Bombay. We had a little hole in the wall on Mulberry Street between Prince and Spring. And those early films, we weren't making much money. And yet, New York, Manhattan was still a place, even though it seemed expensive at the time, it was incredibly cheap compared to now. And you could actually live in Manhattan without making a lot of money. And we had two steam bags because we were cutting in film, a 16 millimeter. And then later, we cut... Salam Bombay on 53rd Street between Broadway and 8th Avenue. I remember that well because one day one of my assistants went to get soup at the, the soup, soup place. place. And, I, and she came back crying. <laughs> she literally came back crying and without soup. <laughs> If you followed the rules, you were the George Costanza. Bread, <laughs> no substitutions. Nice <laughs> no questions. No, and you have to have your money ready. That took me there, and you said follow the rules. Oh, <laughs> it was the right place. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've taken people there that are Seinfeld close friends. That exaggerated. No, it wasn't. No soup for you. So, like, if you said, does that have chicken stock in it? No, no, no. I'm already wincing at the thought. You can't do that. The soup was terrific. Terrific. It was worth it. It was worth it. Oh, yeah. The torture. It was terrifying. Yeah, because Seinfeld wasn't an exaggeration at all. Not at all. Over the course of a nearly seven-year career in Cinema Verité documentary, Mira Nair developed an understanding of the narrative art of filmmaking and how to create a compelling drama through editing. I asked Barry Brown to talk about their perspective on documentary versus scripted features in approaching the edit. I think Mira probably treated documentaries like I treated documentaries in the way that Emil D'Antonio talked about documentaries, which was, on some level, they're not any different than uh, a narrative film. You still have to create characters. You still have to introduce people. You have to have emotional arcs. You have to be a storyteller. Mm -hmm. D'Antonio said there's really no difference. The source is different, and that's about it. That's how I treated it, and I think that's how Mira treated it. It was about storytelling all along. You know, it was, for me, so much easier to cut a feature than to cut a documentary. Because you have to find the documentary in the editing room. And 
you know, features from everybody else has done the heavy lifting for you. You know, you just gotta cut the things together. <laughs> it's 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 easy. And like in the cabaret, there was this thing that she did, which was shoot three of the dancers in the back of a taxi in Bombay. Long, long scene, right? And and breathless. And I thought, wow, I can do my homage, you know, where you where you do the jumps, right? You do the jumps in the backseat of a taxi. And, you know, you go from light to dark to light to dark to light to dark, and you make people, everybody see it. And I said, wow, this is great. You know, but that was in a documentary, but we did the same thing. And in Salam Bombay, very much a feeling of you are there. You were in that neighborhood. At some point, you just lose the sense that this is not a real place and these are not real people. Maybe it really comes back to, I, I, I never cut the documentaries. I get a documentary. <laughs> Maybe that's it. I mean, the biggest challenge all the time is rhythm. You know, you just want to keep the rhythm and you want to keep a, a movie going. And I have a tendency to cut very fast and... And Mira always was somebody who, uh, let's breathe here, let's slow up, let's slow up, slow up, slow up. Also trying to figure out, you know, when a scene begins and when it ends. When you're writing a film, you know, a scene can go on longer because it works better on the page. But when you've got it shot and it's cut and it's in the movie, you sort of realize that sometimes some of these scenes, the scene is actually over. And we're just hanging around for these extra lines that are good, but the scene is over. The scene has ended. We've got to leave it. Buoyed by the success of India Cabaret, which opened the first Indian International Film Festival, Mira Nair and her Harvard roommate, Sunitara Parabella, started developing an earlier idea of working with Bombay Street Kids for a fictional film. And Suni developed a plot from the stories they heard during the interviews. The resulting film, Salam Bombay, was the first Indian film to win the Commodore at Cannes. It also earned an Oscar nomination. Barry shared what he knew about how Salam Bombay came together. But she set up she set up a summer-long workshop with these kids. Mm. She did the same thing with Queen of Katwe. You know, and Sean Baker, when he did the Florida project, he called me up to talk to me about that. And said, you know, what is it? What do, what do they do? Can I talk to them? And so I passed them on. I don't know if John Baker talked to Mira or the other people that worked on Salam Bombay and Queen of Katwe about how they worked with children because Sean was interested in how they were able to get these incredible performances from these little kids. Right. And obviously, how, what, how, whatever he did, he found the same thing. Because yeah. he got an amazing performance. Oh. But I know that in both those films, Queen of Katwe and Salam Bombay, they did months of work with these kids. And a lot of kids, a lot of them. And, and also to find out who was good, who had a personality, who could act. And in both films, they were able to pull people out who they understand uh, we can really rely on him or her. They'll deliver. But still, for Mira, you know, Mira is really is down and dirty in terms of all this stuff. She isn't a person who has a privileged attitude, even though she grew up in a very privileged household. Incredibly privileged. 
I mean, she grew up in India, and I grew up in Alabama, and I never knew anybody growing up in Alabama that was as privileged as she was growing up in India. And yet she had that thing for the street. And obviously in an amazing way, in a very authentic way. You know, they after Salam Bombay, the same thing with Queen of Conway, they they created this this I don't know what you call it, a school, an orphanage, uh, yeah. you know a workshop. Uh, yeah, yeah, for the kids in, in, in Bombay and you know Oh, you mean afterwards you, after Salam oh, yeah, Bombay the foundation. Yeah, the foundation to yeah. take care of street kids. Right. Yeah. You know, I had the pleasure of on the reluctant fundamentalist, I went over and we mixed it in India. Mm. And so I was there for six weeks. Mm. And the Nas has this very distinctive purple pickup truck. And uh, e even in India, it's the only one. <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and whenever she, wherever she drives around, if she stops, immediately street kids just flock to the purple because they recognize that purple. And suddenly you're just surrounded by street kids. Mm. And she's... She's like the Pied Piper for street kids in India. It's really, it's a, she's an amazing, amazing person. What was, what was sort of remarkable also, uh, I mean, certainly her ability to work with all of those people and get that performance out of them. But the very kids who play the kids, who, who are being sort of brought up out of this dire poverty, in the course of that movie, that movie is, is doing that same thing to these kids. All of these kids then went on to, on, to, on to schools. And that movie transformed their lives. It has really transformed their lives. Like both of those films, I feel like, left a legacy of helping people, you know, behind. They, bo they both did. Yeah. And they both a... did. And I think that it, fascinate, it fascinates me, but it fascinates her life on the street. And the very first film was in Hindi, and Salam Bombay was in Hindi. So I had to have an assistant who spoke Hindi. But after a while, you know, you're working on these films, you get to know the dialogue so well, even though maybe you can't repeat it, that you get it, and then you can just cut it. I'm sure Allison had the same experience on Monsoon Wedding. Yeah, and, and it's strange because... I always think, well, I should have learned the language. I should be able to speak it after hearing it all that time. But Monsoon Wedding had, what, three different languages. So, I mean, I really couldn't tell the difference because I didn't know any of them. But um, they come in and out of English, mm -hmm. too. Yeah, I yeah. mean, especially in Monsoon Wedding, you have yeah. some people who only spoke Hindi or Telugu, but then you have the other people who slip in and out. So you really, you don't need the subtitles because you know, because part of it is in English, you get it. That's picture editor Allison Johnson. Allison Johnson's feature film work includes Mira Nair's The Namesake, Vanity Fair, and Monsoon Wedding, which received the Golden Lion for Best Film at the 2001 Venice Film Festival. Her television work includes Smash, The Wire, The Good Fight, and Boz Luhrmann's Netflix series, The Get Down. Picture editors Barry Brown and Allison Johnson met working in the documentary world, and due to a scheduling conflict, Barry introduced Allison to Mira Nair, which led to her first editing job for a feature film. Here, Allison describes her first week of editing Mira Nair's Monsoon Wedding. I think I met her once, and then I think she went to India and started shooting. So there I was, sitting in an edit room by myself. My assistant was working at night. So I didn't even see her. And this footage would show up in a different language. 
I didn't know what setups were. I didn't know what slates meant. So I literally just treated it like a documentary. And I just said, I have the script, so I'll just try to get all the best bits and put them together. And I think I pretty much still do that. I try but to make you panic like first. Right? First I panic. I always first you panic. panic. First. Always panic. We all do. I can't do this. I can't do this. Oh, Why do they hire me? When Dave can, Dave can, can uh, vouch for this one, we, we were in London, and I was waiting for dailies for Vanity Fair. And I was reading, and Dave walked in, and he said, what are you reading? I said, I'm reading a book on editing. Because I have absolutely no idea what I'm I think doing. It was, the, it was either the art of editing or in the blink of an eye. Yeah. Yeah. How, to, like, how to edit. Are you crazy? And I was like, no. I go, And I do every single time I start a new job. But that made me feel better. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> All right. That's editor David Smith, who served as Allison's assistant editor for several Mira Nair films. Dave and I had worked together on a VH1 documentary. That's and he right, was, yeah. he, you know, oh he, he was the night assistant. <laughs> he would come in and he would fix everything. And he was just always, he was just like this guy who would just make everything right. And one day he said, you know, I, I've seen your work and I and I I would love to work with you at some point. And I, yeah, it was after that. And I saw Allison yeah, Wedding. I was like, I oh, was Allison, like, I worked with Allison. Yeah. And that's, that's what it was. And I, I was I, like, oh, definitely, I'm going to hire this guy. So thank God he... You know, he helped me through many, many yeah. films, and I just re could really count on him. Allison recalls the vulnerability of working with undeveloped film stock in the time of X-ray security machines and how she turned what could have been a nightmare scenario into something artful as the editor. Remember when they shot in the swimming pool? That beautiful tile pool. They had one day to shoot in that pool, and then they mm -hmm. were not ever going to be able to go back. And I received the dailies three or four days later because it, you know, it took a long time to get to us. And the negative had been x-rayed on the way mm -hmm. to India. So there was a huge amount of footage that had oh, this. Yes, it, it, right. it looked like a Xerox machine was going through. It was a zzz, zzz, zzz. And so it had to be cut around. So I, I cut around it most of the time, but then, you know, you had that party element. You know, there were certain shots that you could make it look like maybe there was a light that was happening. And yeah, I mean, you, you have limited coverage for something that should be huge and you wow. have to make it feel huge. I mean, they did some visual effects, but the visual effects in those days, you know, <laughs> they lessened the Xerox machine look, but they couldn't get rid of it. Pre-recording mixer Dominic Tavella met Mira Nair while mixing her early student films at Duart Labs in New York. Later working in the final round of the mix for the Perez family at Sound One, he describes their working relationship. Dominic Tavella has been an award-winning re-recording engineer for over 40 years. He has worked with a wide variety of clients for both theatrical film release and major television documentary series. His clients include Mira Nair, Jim Jarmusch, Ken Burns, and many others. Our sensibilities really melded in a lot of ways. And for, for some reason, we just clicked. Because every film I ever done with her, I always really kind of felt like I understood what she was trying to do, the point she was trying to make. And I always tried to work to that point, and I, and I think I've been very successful at it. And quite literally from that moment on, I ended up doing the biggest majority of her work. 
And I'm just trying to think, I don't think I ever had any kind of conflicts with Mirror like that. Everything was always seemed such like a smooth flow. A lot of it has to do just with personality, personality yeah. comfort yeah. level. I can talk to you and you can understand what I'm saying and, and you could talk to me. My own experience is if you click with someone on a personal level, it's much more effective. It's, it's hard to come in, at least, at least for me, to do just a job. You know, and I'm fortunate enough at this point I've worked with enough people long enough so that virtually all the work I do now is, is family. But I also have to understand, I've been in the room with, you know, with Dominic and Mira, and I also think that Dominic, exactly what he says, that they had a style that, that clicked, but also Dominic has a way uh, of talking to directors, and some directors might be annoyed by it, some others... Some are. <laughs> are, are will not be, like when you say, well, you know, there's still that click in there, and you'll say, you know, turn, put up your hands and say, I'm working on that. <laughs> and Mira would always be, oh, okay, of course, of course he's working on it. <laughs> you know? and, and yet, you know, listen, there's mixers who get annoyed with that, and and you have a conflict, but I think Dominic always had a style that said, you have to understand this is a process, I'm in the midst of it, you give me 10 more minutes, then you'll hear it. Yeah. And and I think Mira always appreciated that. Because yeah. I can never understand how, because I know there are some mixers who do this, you know, you're trying to put together a scene, you're trying to work on the dialogues, up, and they'll say, well, that car going by is too loud. My attitude is, I know the car's too loud, I'm working on the dialogue, let me work on the dialogue. No, I'll try to we'll be nice there. about it, but that, that's the point. But I know there are other people who just say, you know, okay, stop and lower the car. And then the next pass they go and say, okay, oh, the, those footsteps are too loud. So stop it with the footsteps. And to me, I kind of like, I see a scene and I kind of, in my mind, I could put together all the elements and I know what I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. So even though the music's too loud or the footsteps are too loud or whatever, and I'm working on the dialogue, I know this is what I want to do with the dialogue. And it often happens in the mix and I'll just, like Barry says, I'll turn and say, you know, let me work on it. And it's out of, uh, you know, have to do 10 things to get the scene to work. It's oftentimes not until I get to steps nine and 10 that it actually comes together. So yeah. then I'll say, you know, Dominic, that, that car buy is too, too loud. And the mirror will say, he's working on it. <laughs> <laughs> he's working on the dialogue right now. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. You really couldn't get things by her. You know? Oh, she absolutely. Had, she had very, yeah. very sharp ears, and she's very precise in terms mm-hmm. of like every T, yeah. and every yeah. S. If and something every, wasn't articulate, you know, or, yeah. or or and she could definitely hear if you if you've played with it, and maybe used another take. Yeah. So you had to be very careful <laughs> if you were going to replace a word. It had to be either a part of a word, because that's often what we do is we're replacing parts of words to make the overall sentence clear as possible. But the trick is to do it to do it in a way that's invisible. That's ADR and dialogue supervisor Tony Martinez, who has worked in post-production in New York for over 30 years, most recently supervising the dialogue and ADR on the features I, Tanya, Mudbound, and the soon-to-be-released Can You Ever Forgive Me? He was nominated for a Primetime Emmy for his sound editing work on HBO's Mildred Pierce and was recognized with a Golden Reel Award from the MPSE for his work on HBO's Bessie. Tony is proud to have worked with Mira Nair as a supervising sound editor on Vanity Fair and as a dialogue editor on the films Amelia and Kama Sutra. Here, Tony remembers how certain elements came together while working as sound supervisor on Vanity Fair. 
With Mira, the less you replace, the better, because... Because she's built the performance <clears throat> in the editing room. So if you're, yeah. you start changing things, she knows immediately. The Foley's were really, really good on that film. Because mm. she's very intent on hearing the, the rustling of, the, of these rich... She really wanted you to oh, put, the, put the viewer in the perspective of Becky Sharp as entering this elite world. So it was really important for her, I remember, in one scene, just to hear the swishing of, the, of all these women's dresses, mm -hmm. the, way, uh, the way Becky would hear them about sound. Right, she was really yeah, into yeah, the yeah. process. And the other challenges was just because, with dialogue anyway, it, was, it, was, it takes place in the 19th century England, and you know, there's airplanes. Oh, I remember one. Yeah, oh my God, yeah, the airplanes. The Vauxhall scene, yeah. the airplanes going on. And right now we have, we have the tools where we can basically paint that stuff out. But yeah, at the time... Yeah, at the time, it was... It was turning a lot of knobs and moving yeah. a lot of buttons and stuff to try and clean out airplane noise. And ADR, too. You know, a lot of the times we just had to resort to ADR because there would be a rain machine going on. You'd have to scrap the production tracks. But, you know, I honor the commitment to saving the production track that a lot of directors do. Saving the performance. I totally believe that. You know, a lot of directors will shy away from ADR, and to her credit, this is true of Robert Benton, too. She embraced the process. You know, she knows we have to do it. She knows we're going to go into a studio. We have to do it because we, the production track is unusable. So she uses it as an opportunity to revisit performances and tweak things here and there. The way she Robert can get good and, performances you know. on the ADR stage. And she does. Yeah, she, she got, got good, good performances out of you in the booth, I, I remember, a say, number of times. In the booth, she would say. In the booth. King Tony. That's not fair. Yeah, it's probably not, uh, you know, yeah, I was, I played the king in this movie. I, I had one word. One, there's a scene in, in Vanity Fair when Becky elopes and she's in, she's in bed with her husband, and they're practically whispering. But some of the words you kind of lose, and we really needed to ADR it, but the ADR wasn't quite good enough. So, but what we did was we, we used just parts of the ADR to accentuate certain yeah. syllables and crafted it that way. And so you could hear it, but we were just using these little, little tiny little pieces, of, pieces of, of consonants, you know, yeah. just to articulate certain words, because we knew also that Mira would want to Hear it. <laughs> and preserve, yeah. the, preserve the performance, too. Yeah. So the performance is preserved. We just kind of tweaked it a little bit with ADR, you know. Just the, the main challenges on a lot of projects are, frankly, the budget and the time. And on a film like Vanity Fair, which is kind of big in scope and luscious and epic, it's hard to, you know, match the visuals with sound when you have a limited budget. And she knows it's going to be challenging, and she knows it's going to be hard, and she knows she's going to drive you but she do, but she does it in a way that um yeah you don't mind you don't mind you you want you want to you want to come through for her you know and mm -hmm. she i remember on vanity fair she had a party i think before we started on the job when she invited the crew to her apartment and she cooked for us and it was a real family kind of feel to it I think that's a big part of the way she she she, she seduces us. <laughs> it's definitely a seduction, yeah. Sweating for her because she, she makes us feel like we're part of something. Yeah, exactly the same way she gets great performances out of actors. She gets great yeah. performances out of everybody. She draws the best performances out of all of us in the work that we do on her projects, you know, which is is an important skill for a director. To have. <laughs> and that, the one thing that I loved about working with Mira and her crews is that it just had that family feeling. That's music editor Jen Dunnington, who's worked with Mira Nair on the films Amelia, 
and Vanity Fair. She's also collaborated as music editor with directors such as Martin Scorsese, The Coen Brothers, Ang Lee, Tom McCarthy, Peter Jackson, Barry Levinson, David Cronenberg, and Ken Burns. There were so many women on her productions, and that, as a woman, that was a really refreshing experience. It was just a totally different vibe than what I'm used to, because it's usually me and everybody else is a man. And, and that was a, a really wonderful thing to have on a project on every step of the way, it was just the whole idea of I'm a mother and I'm juggling these creatures and she was a mother and, you know, it was just a support that was always there. Because you're, you're not, as a woman, you're not used to it in film mm. and post anyway, and it was very, it stood out in a very refreshing way. And I was going through some of my notes before I came here of Mira's notes to Michael Dana, who she's worked with for, you know, on, on many, many projects. Mm -hmm. It was the back and forth of reporting to the composer what I was changing in the music to make it work for Mira. Because the score doesn't always work. It works well as it's written for the most part, but then the picture changes or things happen and things are different. And once it's been recorded and it's done, then it's then the music editor has to change things to make it work for the director of the scene or whatever. And she's very particular about music and mm -hmm. very, very involved in it. And, you know, she knows she knows what she wants. She has an idea of the instruments. She may not know which instrument it is, but she knows what, what sound she wants. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just re I remember when Jen was doing the temp mix, she just would compose things out of temp music that I was just like, oh, my God, she just recomposed this <laughs> this piece of music. And I have this great piece of temp music. Uh, it was just incredible watching her work. And Kama Sutra, the way we did the music on Kama Sutra is because we had, whatever, 20 cues on 24-track tape, uh, but nothing was really cut in any particular place. So we'd get to a scene where we need the music, and Mir would say, oh, God, take this one this one cue from reel three. We'd cue it up and we'd figure out, you know, exactly how it would sit. And then we would, you know, add the horns. No, it's better without the horns. Um, we'd push the guitar a little, that's a little bit better. But we'd have, they'd have like a sitar on two tracks and, you know, bass on two tracks and top on two tracks, that kind of stuff. And we'd add and pull away instruments. We essentially created the music track on the spot for the film out of bits and pieces of the score that was composed for the film. We would move stuff around and remix on the spot. It was it was really crazy, but it worked so well. Just, she did have a great sense of knowing a sound that she wanted, like you were saying. Like I remember, do you remember the flute? There was some flute that we recorded in Vanity Fair, and I remember being in London, and it was like she was looking for kind of a range that, the flute player couldn't play, even though it, it was a low instrument. And so we dropped it an octave, which is a huge amount to drop the, this, that sound. But it was such a cool sound, and it, and it was a really, it worked really well. Yeah. It's, it, visually, it's very easy for some people to understand, you know, you see something moving, whatever. But sound, a lot of people don't really understand how sound is, gets into your brain and affects things, and people react to it in a lot of different ways. And if, if you're smart, as a filmmaker, when you're putting things together, you'll understand this and, and know how you want to structure the sound to get into people's heads. 
The sound supervisor's work, overseeing the creation of all audio for a film, is essential to making a coherent whole out of the cinematic experience. Sound supervisor Dave Patterson has created soundscapes that help us travel across multiple generations and continents with Mira Nair on several films, including The Queen of Kotway, The Reluctant Fundamentalist, Amelia, and The Namesake. His credits also include work with Sidney Lumet, Woody Allen, and Dee Reese. Here he describes his process of creating a sense of traveling between generations and countries through sound for the film The Namesake. We were going from India and then we were going to New York in the 70s, 70s 80s, wherever, yeah. whatever it was, and then sort of more modern. So it's sort of creating these different environments for what would be appropriate for those time periods or, or location. I still remember doing the first introduction to New York really clearly because we go to New York and it's funny, it's like, I remember it more vividly, I think, than any other film I've ever done. We go to New York and she's alone in the apartment and it's winter and she's from, from India where right. it's, it's never cold, you know? And, and, and creating that sense of loneliness and cold. And I remember I did some sound um, that, that she just loved. I, I went out at the back of my house I went out one day and there was water dripping from my roof and landing on a metal pipe. Mm. And it was just going, thunk, thunk. And I was like, what a cool sound. And I recorded it and I was like, you know, that has a lonely quality to it. So I put it into the, that scene mm. and, and there's no indication that there's water dripping anywhere in that scene or why that would be the case. But it had a very wintry, you know, like ice starting to melt kind of feeling to it. And she loved that, you know, and, and it was sort of about creating this sense of we're going from warm India and there's like the radiator kind of ticking in the in the New York apartment and like sort of and creating this like because it was a really from a sound person scene. It was a beautiful thing because you had like two minutes where nothing was happening. You know, we just had these <laughs> shots of an empty apartment and stuff. And so I was able to create these very subtle sounds that we'd actually be able to hear without having music over top of it heavily and, and you know. And so, like, I had, like, this really little moment of creating an environment, and I, I still, it's one of my favorite little bits, actually. And then, and then you hear her, you know, her husband unlocking the door and coming up the stairs and coming into the apartment and this sense of her loneliness in this environment that is completely alien to her, you know, and yeah. kind of creating that with, with sound. And, She's very into specific details that have story and character mm -hmm. meaning. And I'm super into that sort of stuff as well. The, like Barry was talking about documentary. Like I, I feel like she brings a documentary feel to sort of everything that she does and shoots. So she wants things to sound like if the microphone was just on the street, exactly as though like you were getting all the things that were sort of happening there. She doesn't want her films to sound antiseptic. She wants it just filled with life. And I went and worked with her in India. And so I kind of get a sense of why, where that goes, because India is a very loud and vibrant place, actually. And I think she, from a sound perspective, really wants that sense of space and environment and the, what the characters are doing and, and really, you know, having the sound contribute to telling the story. The re-recording engineer for this session was Vinny Alfano of Parabolic, New York. Music credits include selections from the soundtrack of Mississippi Masala by L. Subramaniam and Kama Sutra and Vanity Fair by Michael Dana. 
We welcome your comments and suggestions. Write us at framebyframe at postnewyork.org. This podcast was produced by myself, Isabel Siderni. Stay tuned for the next episode with the collaborators of Ron Howard.